It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 25th of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The government is expected to approve emergency legislation today to help people meet the cost of domestic electricity bills. Energy costs are soaring. Electricity is up 22%, gas 28% and home heating oil 52% on last year's prices. The price of natural gas along with low wind speed and power plants closing temporarily are driving up the cost of electricity. Under this emergency legislation, every household in the country will have a €100 Euro credit applied to their account. That will happen automatically. There's no need to apply yourself for the €100. Euro. It'll be taken off your bill and because it excludes VAT, it will actually be worth €113.50. Euro. The cost to the exchequer will be €210 million, Euro, but not enough according to the Labour Party and uh, the Labour Party will bring forward its own motion on energy costs Uh, today. Jed Nash will move that motion. He's Labour's spokesperson on finance and a a TD for Loud and East Mead and on the line with us uh, this morning. And a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, You want to see the VAT on energy bills reduced from uh, the current rate of 13.5%. We do as um, in the context of a range of measures that uh, government can take, measures that are under their own control that would alleviate the cost of living crisis, Michael, for hundreds of thousands of families uh, across the country. Uh, in the last few weeks in particular, uh, I've been contacted by families who would never contact me, uh, families who objectively might appear to be comfortable, but are finding it really hard, Michael, to make ends meet because of rising fuel costs, because of rising rent costs, because we have the uh, second highest mortgage interest rates uh, in Europe and because the, the cost of everything basically is rising uh, and in the last few weeks we've actually seen even the uh, uh, an increase in the, the rise of basic foodstuffs uh, the, the foods that ordinary families rely on uh, particularly when they're stretched bread and pasta for example has gone up over five percent over the last few weeks and it's having a real pinch in families mm. across the yeah, country. Well, so grocery the, bills are going to increase by about 800 euro over the course of uh, the next year according to Cantar who has been serving that uh, surveying that um, but uh, what would you be talking about instead of that rate of 13 half percent of uh-huh. that uh, w- would you uh, agree with uh, what was proposed by Michael Collins an independent TD in November he was suggesting five percent 
Um, we can't actually do that um, because the, the basic, the, 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 we have two, um, uh, three uh, VAT rates in this country, Michael, 23% is the standard rate, 13.5% is the rate that is applied, for example, to electricity, uh, gas and home heating oil. And then we have a 9% rate as well mm. that's applied to various products. So, And there's uh, an EU VAT directive. There is an EU VAT directive, but there is a way, and we propose this to government in the Dáil tomorrow, a way in which we can reduce the VAT rate, which would only cost us um, down to, for example, electricity, gas and oil to 9%, 9% and, and the same for uh, diesel and fuel. It would only cost actually about $200 million. That's the value, in fact, of this kind of gimmick that the government uh, announced in December where they would take €100, Euros, now €113.5 uh, off your electricity bill uh, in March. Um, it would cost about $200 million to do that over a period of six months. This is a temporary measure. Uh, and if we saw the derogation mm. from the European Commission to allow us to do this, that would mean then that uh, once that derogation, once that temporary um, period of difficulty that we're experiencing at the moment that would last uh, probably over the next year. Once that uh, ends, then we could bring our VAT rate back up to the lower rates rather than the 23%, for example. Okay. Because if you do um, bring it down to a lower rate, <clears throat> the European rules insist that you must bring it back up to 23%. But with a derogation, and there's a toolbox available, they call it, mm. from the European Commission to EU member states to allow member states to tackle uh, the rising cost of living. The, the so you're, you're saying to stay within the bands that we have uh, as such uh, because the EU VAT directive allows us to have the standard VAT rate and two reduced rates. We have the 23%, we have the 13.5% and we have Precisely. the 9% uh, at this stage. And you're saying to bring the 13.5% on energy costs down to that rate of 9% and that would require derogation but it would still leave us with the three rates, the standard rate and the two reduced rates. It would, and we, and we can't, we, we can't uh, adapt those without uh, uh, significant problems with, uh, in the context of the European Union. But there's a number of different things, Michael, that we're proposing in the motion. Um, we understand that there are a number of different things that factors that are feeding into this, and obviously the um, very unstable situation in Ukraine at the moment is feeding as well into uncertainty around wholesale. Uh, gas and, and electricity prices, and that's understandable. But there are things that government can control um, where they can actually make interventions to help people meet the cost of living. We warned the government about this in October, Michael, uh, in the context of our own alternative budget proposals, when we said that there should be inflation-busting social welfare increases. The social welfare increases that were announced that are hitting people's uh, pockets uh, um, uh, this month uh, go nowhere near um, dealing with the rising cost of living. In fact, uh, the reality is that uh, by, the, by the time the year is out, it'll affect you. You mean a five euro cut in terms of where you were last year because the euro mm. in your pocket just isn't going as far uh, as it did this time well, last year. Not, calling as well, for not, example, not, for, not, for the case, not, not the case for a pensioner living alone who'll be up 13 euro uh, when you take it into account uh, the increase in uh, the pension, the living alone allowance, and the fuel allowance. Yeah, uh, and the fuel allowance, of course, Michael, doesn't apply to everybody. Uh, mm. Not everybody gets the fuel allowance. And one of the proposals that we had made back in our alternative budget, and we will make it again, is for 130,000 additional families who will be at risk of falling into fuel poverty because of the rising cost of inflation, the increased cost of living, that they will be included in the fuel allowance, that the fuel allowance will be extended more by another um, four weeks to allow people to uh, make uh, to make ends meet. Look, we've had a, Just going back to VAT, Michael, I think this is an important mm. point to make. We had a bumper year last year, uh, a VAT windfall um, arising for the Exchequer, 1 billion euro, 1 billion euro ahead of profile. And a lot of that actually was down to uh, the windfall that they came to the state from uh, VAT on uh, rising fuel bills uh, and energy bills. Uh, and 
our argument is that much of that windfall should go back to the people who need it most. And that's why I call the initiative that government announced December that they're only now legislating for the €100 off your electricity bill as a bit of a gimmick because it was really poorly targeted. I'll get it, you'll get it, but a lot of people that I represent who really need more will only get this as well and that's why we're calling for a whole-of-government approach to dealing with this cost-living crisis. It's with us actually for probably the next year. Uh, The Governor of the Central Bank yesterday said that, okay, it may be somewhat transitory, but we will still in this country uh, post uh, this uh, particular experience that we're having now this very acute okay. experience we'll still have higher inflation rates than the rest of the world okay but if that universal approach uh, that the government is taking is a mistake is it not exactly the same mistake you're making then because uh, this 100 euro or 113 euro 50 will go to everybody it'll go to airline bosses it'll go to hospital consultants judges tds uh, and so on people who won't really worry about 113 euro uh, but you're suggesting a cut in VAT and the result would be the same that everybody would get the same sort of discount yeah but it is the simplest way way to do this uh, and remember this would apply for a period of at least six okay, months but that we're sounds, like, that sounds a little bit like the pot calling the kettle black no it's one of the few tools that is available in our toolbox. It's one of the few weapons we have in our armoury to actually drive down uh, the cost of living. And the reason why we're talking about VAT, Michael, is because there was a record uh, VAT take last year. Mm. VAT is the uh, second biggest but source your criti- of But your criticism of government, no, just, just correct me if I'm wrong, but, I'm sorry, but, you, but disproportionately is exactly the point because it's a universal p- payment. The, is, is that not the criticism that you're making of government? No. And would it not be the same result of, of making a, a universal no. cut to VAT? No, you, you, I think you, you misinterpret what we're trying to do here. Um, I did say that there, there is a, 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 an enormous uh, well of VAT from which to draw uh, with €1 billion euro head of profile last year. This is about giving something back to those who need it more. All of the research shows and all of the lived experience, Michael, shows that. And Michael Collins, mm. who quoted earlier on, um, sorry, uh, Michael Collins, an economist who is in UCD, not Michael Collins, the TD from Cork South West, uh, an eminent economist uh, who has been involved in lots of very significant think tanks uh, over a mm. period of time, mm. would say with the ESRI, for example, that when you cut VAT, uh, you uh, ensure that those who are less well off do better because it is people who are less well off who are impacted by high rates of VAT. Uh, it is a, a tax on consumption uh, and the basic necessities, uh, VAT applies to everything and the basic necessities, VAT supplied on that as well. So, um, it will enable mm. if but, there is a but if you, decrease. If you to were to decrease, at the same time, if you were go a little bit further. But if you were to decrease uh, the rate of VAT on energy, uh, you'd still have discounts for airline bosses and TDs and hospital consultants and judges but, and but so proportionately on. Le- but, but proportionately less. Uh, so if you look at, for example, the gimmick that the government is introducing and the legislation that they're going to publish today, that will apply to everybody uh, equally. But proportionately, when you cut VAT, it has a disproportionately good benefit for those who are less well off mm. because of the impact that it has on their pay packet on okay. their could, you, could you um, not argue that the other way that 113 euro would be worth an awful lot of, of money to people who are struggling to meet their bills uh, whereas once off this is the point okay so how long would you uh, propose uh, this uh, cut in VAT uh, running for because we're told that this inflation is only temporary yeah, and that's why we proposed in our motion, uh, and, and, and you will have seen the motion, Michael, uh, that uh, this should be reviewed at budget time. That's appropriate that that be the case. The budget has taken place in October. The preparations for the budget will start uh, in June, July. We'll have a better read in terms of how inflation is going in Ireland and across Europe, and we're in a better position then to assess uh, how long this 
uh, should uh, go on for. Our view is that it should be temporarily introduced for six months. That's why we should be making the case to the European Commission. This is not a permanent flat uh, cut. We wouldn't be talking about permanent interventions in, 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 the, in the market here. It is just to deal with the very, very severe situation of families across this county, across this country are experiencing, and it is disproportionately being felt by the less well-off. Okay, and uh, you'd also propose taxing the industry, uh, those who provide energy, uh, in order to, to bring down the cost uh, to users. That, that's right, uh, and um, that, that, is, that is something as well that's being discussed in, in the UK um, as we speak. Um, we think it is important that because they have experienced very significant significant windfalls and are making super normal profits, firstly as a result of of COVID-19, but secondly, as a result of the energy and electricity market and where it's at at the moment, we believe that a strong case could be made for introducing a specific levy um, in the way that we would say, let's return some of the windfall that's come into the VAT uh, stream in terms of revenue. Uh, let's use that to uh, assist those who are less well off and those who are struggling uh, to make uh, ends meet at this particularly uh, difficult time. So we think there is a strong argument to be made for uh, interrogating the idea of, of a windfall tax uh, that would be levied against super normal profits. Of course, companies should be making profits. That's what they're in business to do. They provide important services. They pay their staff and they make profits. But where there are super normal profits, we think that there is an argument for taxing those and levying those to allow us to get through the position that we're in at the moment. Okay, you're also suggesting that the government would support pay increases for workers in line with the cost of living increases. Uh, how much uh, should paid claims be running at for this year? Well, the Irish Congress of Trade Unions uh, said before Christmas that um, private sector pay claims should be within the region of 25 to um, 5%. And um, that's obviously always under review. Um, if that is the case, they would not re- result in what we might describe as inflation busting and pay increases. And the whole point here is to ensure that uh, wage and social welfare increases outpace the rising uh, cost of living to make sure that people aren't adversely affected and that, and that the euro in their pocket uh, uh, goes a little bit um, further. Um, we have said time and again, Michael, and I've said it repeatedly on the program, we have a problem with low pay in this country. Uh, 23% of all Irish workers uh, are uh, by OECD reckoning uh, low paid. Uh, and that's why we want to see additional rises over a period of time at the national minimum wage. I mean, 30, 30 cent an hour increase um, that was uh, instituted uh, this year it won't go anywhere near uh, dealing with the cost of living uh, challenges that ordinary workers have. And what we want to do, of course, is move to a living wage. And we've been talking about that now since 2016. And government has been very, very slow uh, indeed to move. And the same applies here to social welfare increases. It was up, went up 2%. In the budget, we warned the government at the time that inflation was uh, rising significantly ahead of that, uh, and that there would effectively be real cuts to people who are depending on the state uh, for their uh, income. And the problem that we have now in the context of a rising cost of living is that that gap between the haves and the have-nots is going to widen uh, even more, and that's why government has to take a whole of government approach, including uh, looking again at rent freezes, looking at uh, the cost or, or the, the value of the um, national minimum wage, uh, looking at social welfare. Uh, benefits and looking at all the tools that they can make, including VAT and, for example, introducing what we had called for uh, late last year, a carbon credit for working families who don't get the fuel allowance and aren't on the household benefits package to help them uh, make ends meet and meet the fuel bills.
Okay. Uh, if they're working from home, uh, they may be paying more than would have been the case otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and your motion uh, will be debated by uh, the Dáil this week. The government is also uh, considering uh, legislation uh, on uh, the right to request to be able to work uh, from home. Uh, what do you make of uh, that? Uh, because some people are saying that you should have a, a right to work from home. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. And, and of course, we haven't seen the, the, the legislation yet. But what we have been arguing for is, is a right in law. Uh, to be able to work remotely and that there will be a proper balance of rights. Uh, we understand, of course, that um, one can only go so far in interfering, if we can use that word, with um, contracts that have already uh, been made. Uh, but I, I think what, what COVID-19 has taught us is that um, it's something I've been writing about for years and thankfully now it's part of a wider national international conversation. You know, how we work has changed uh, and that benefits, I, I think, everybody. Workers, are as productive, if not more productive, when they're not spending hours every day commuting. Um, they are productive working from their home office if they have one or from a hot desk in a local enterprise centre, as happens in places, for example, like Drogheda, where, where they are available. So there needs to be a proper balance of rights here. Uh, the right to request um, remote working um, appears to me on the face not to be sufficient to vindicate uh, what we would like uh, for, for workers, and that is a clearer pathway to enable them to work effectively and productively uh, remotely while saving on uh, commuting bills, saving on mm-hmm. uh, fuel, on, on, on petrol and diesel bills, going to and from work and, and saving on um, commuting tickets. I mean, for example, the National Transport Authority said to me, Michael, late last year, that they would finally concede to my demands to introducing a new form of tax saver ticket uh, to recognise the fact that people are working uh, in a hybrid fashion. They may be spending two, three days a week uh, in Dublin if you're living alone in East Mead and commuting uh, and spending the rest of that time working from home. They haven't done that yet. So government is really, really slow to act on matters like this. They should have introduced this legislation, by the way, uh, earlier on. In November 2020, we proposed legislation, though they wouldn't accept it legislation on, 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 on remote working. They wouldn't accept it, saying that they were going to develop their own legislation. And uh, we are at a different phase of the pandemic yet, hopefully a much more optimistic phase, where we, w- we hope we can put the worst of those days behind us. Still, we're waiting for legislation that would actually frame an individual's ro- right to request um, remote working mm. uh, and the protections that that would involve. Well, what we about, don't want either. It's about to be put before you. Yeah, yeah, it is. Mm. Yeah, but yeah. What we, there's been massive delays. And all last weekend, Michael, I've been fielding calls and emails from constituents who were really, really anxious because employers mm. in, in the city uh, were demanding that they come back to work five days a week from next Monday because of the announcement made by uh, the very same Leo Varadkar uh, and Michael Martin, who only announced actually last Friday that they were going to um, uh, table. Only a draft heads a bill, by the way, not not the legislation itself, a heads of a bill this week. So there's some way to go on this. Uh, we won't make a final um, sort of summation. Uh, we, won't, we won't make a final um, commentary really on this until we see the legislation itself. Right. But okay. there needs to be a proper balance here. OK, got to leave it there. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Jed Nash is uh, Labour Party TD for Louth and East Mead and his party spokesperson on finance, public spending and reform. Michael Reed on LMFM. It is criminal to pay for sex, uh, but the upshot of that is uh, that it forces sex workers to take more risks and leaves them at risk of violence. This is according to a report, We Live Within a Violent System, which has been published today by Amnesty International, which says the government needs to start listening to sex workers. Colm O'Gorman is uh, the Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland 
and he's on the line with us. And a very good morning to you, Colm, and thanks for joining us. A lot of people thought it was a very positive move to decriminalise prostitution, uh, as is the case now, and that it's the buyers of sex who have been criminalised as a result of the change in the law. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Indeed, but sex workers, in advance of the introduction of that legislation, made it very clear that they were strongly opposed to it. They didn't accept or believe that this approach would leave them safer, rather that it would expose them to increased danger and increased risk of harm. And indeed, that's what our our research uh, that we've carried out uh, here in Ireland now shows. The vast majority, the overwhelming majority of sex workers that we interviewed for this research um, um, reported that they've experienced various forms of violence at different times while doing sex work. So everything from physical attacks and threats, sexual violence, including rape, robberies, stalking, verbal abuse and harassment, and that includes online harassment. And all of them also reported that they would be very reluctant indeed to report any of these crimes to Angarda Shia because they fear the police. They don't trust the police. And they also reported that the criminalization of purchases of sex leaves them in a position where they're having to take greater risk. They're both working with riskier clients, people who are not put off the idea that they'll be criminalized. But also they're having to work in ways that forces them to act to protect their client rather than themselves. So they're going to riskier spaces and they're, they're not able to work in ways or in places that helps them to protect themselves. And most significantly, and this is a huge issue um, and that all of the sex workers that we spoke to as part of this research uh, made clear to us, the laws which criminalise brothel keeping, which uh, the sanctions for which were increased in 2017, and um, they, they significantly increased the penalties for brothel keeping. And by the way, brothel keeping mm. includes two or more sex workers selling sexual services in the same premises. So if two sex workers want to work together from the same pre- premises for safety, they're committing the offence of brothel keeping. And the penalty for that is a €5,000 fine or a jail term of up to 12 months. So sex workers have made it clear that that in particular means that they're unable to take very basic steps to be able to protect themselves and keep themselves safe. And that's leading to increased violence as well. Okay, but is the objective of the law... not to make prostitution or prostitutes redundant to bring about an end to prostitution uh, to deter men from buying sex predominantly so that uh, people are not trafficked or forced into prostitution Well the law was purportedly designed to protect human trafficking victims and sex workers from exploitation and instead as this evidence shows, as this research shows and indeed as research internationally shows this approach instead facilitates the targeting and abuse of sex workers And here in Ireland now, it's very clear that the state is failing to protect them from violence. So, you know, the law is not achieving what it's set out to achieve. Worse than that, it's leaving the most marginalised and stigmatised, one of the most marginalised and stigmatised groups in society, sex workers, at graver risk of violence, at increased risk of violence, human rights abuses and violations. It's clearly not working. There was no evidence base upon which this law was introduced. And all of the evidence that's available suggests that it's not just counterproductive, but it's actually resulting in increased violence and increased human rights uh, abuses against those that it's purportedly designed to protect. Would the law work better if it was implemented better? Uh, There have been very few prosecutions for men buying sex. No, it wouldn't, because the difficulty is, is that, again, it would leave sex workers in a position where they're having to take greater risks uh, um, um, uh, uh, in, in doing the work that they do and in leaving themselves more and more exposed to violence. 
um, it wouldn't, it would not uh, result in increased protection for sex workers, quite the opposite. And critically, and one of the urgent things that needs to happen immediately is the laws that criminalise sex workers working together for safety. Mm. Those, those need to be urgently repealed. I mean, we're calling for decriminalisation of sex work um, as an, an essential first step to protect as I said, one of the most marginalised and stigmatised groups in society. Um, but the, the, the brothel-keeping laws urgently need, need, need to be repealed so that sex workers can work together in order to protect themselves and keep themselves safe. Now, I want to be very clear, we're certainly not suggesting um, that anybody involved in the exploitation of any person, including people involved in sex work, should be free from accountability or criminal sanction. Sex workers should be protected from exploitation. And clearly, human trafficking is a very, very grave human rights abuse. And the state has an obligation to prevent human trafficking, to protect victims of human trafficking from being trafficked, and to provide access to justice and to hold those responsible for that to account. You also seem to be arguing that we have to accept that prostitutes will always be the subject of violence and that the solution is to give them the wherewithal to report that violence. I think the solution is to make sure that we put in place legal and policy frameworks that allow them to be better protected from violence. Violence, sadly, is a reality of our society. I mean, in the last in the last couple of weeks, we've had a tragic calls to talk about the 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 the, uh, uh, um, the sad reality of, of gender-based violence in this society. We're talking about exactly the same kind of violence, gender-based violence towards sex workers now. Um, and, you know, if we want to protect people who are at risk of violence from violence, you put in place a framework that actually protects them rather than makes them, uh, um, uh, than places them at greater risk of violence. And unfortunately, that's exactly what the Irish state did when it introduced this legislation in 2017. And that's why it needs to be urgently amended. Mm. Uh, and uh, if we do that uh, and you make... Uh prostitution completely legal, uh, you are going to have uh, that same old problem, are you not, of people being forced into prostitution? Well, first of all, anybody being forced into prostitution is not sex work. Sex work is consensual. Uh, um, um, So if somebody is being forced or coerced into sex work, that's exploitation and it should not be permitted. People have to be protected from that. Um, if you if you make if you decriminalise sex work, and to be clear, we're not talking about legalisation; we're talking about decriminalisation. That allows you to start to develop a policy uh, framework and approach that puts the human rights of sex workers and those involved in sex work front and centre. It also uh, includes, for instance, a framework that means that you try and address the issues that perhaps force people, uh, um, 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 uh, as some people might see it, into sex work. Many of the sex workers that we spoke to end up in sex work because, for instance, they're they're experiencing multiple forms of intersectional discrimination, people with disabilities, people uh, um, uh, um, uh, who are living in poverty, people who are experiencing uh, drug issues, drug and alcohol issues, people in homelessness, uh, um, uh, uh, and other marginalised groups, migrants, uh, trans people, non-binary people. These are all people who are experiencing many, many intersectional forms of discrimination, and that's why they find themselves in a position where they feel their only choice in order to put a roof over their head and food on the table for their families to enter sex work. Those sorts of discriminations also need to be addressed. But in addressing those, you must not put in place a legal or a policy framework. That means that people who find themselves in a position where they feel that their their best possible option is to do sex work are left at risk of greater violence. Mm. Uh, What about giving people other options? 
Indeed. I mean, uh, everybody should have an option to, to leave sex work if they, mm. if they want to. And nobody should be put in a position where they feel they haven't, that they're unable to provide for their families for themselves. That's absolutely critical. Mm. I mean, as well as the levels of, of, of violence and other abuses that we see, we see very significant abuses of the social and economic rights of people who are in sex work, yeah. I, I mean, particularly in relation to adequate to, to uh, uh, in, in terms of access to adequate housing. Very often, by the way, we see as, as a result of the laws that are in place, people experiencing eviction because uh, a landlord who rents a property to somebody who's involved in sex work can be prosecuted for benefit from the proceeds of prostitution. Mm. So we're also seeing people being evicted, again, compounding some of the issues that a very marginalised, a particularly stigmatised group in society face yeah. and putting them at even greater risk. I'm finding it difficult to contend with the logic of your argument. I mean, it sounds to me like you're saying, Colm, uh, the poor prostitutes have to work or, or else they can't put a roof over their heads. Uh, if they can't put a roof over their heads, that sounds like forced prostitution, albeit indirectly because of a failure of state policy. Surely that's the problem. That's the area that should be tackled. Well, I think, first of all, we have to be careful that we don't see people in, in two-dimensional terms like that. I mean, the, the, the range of people that we spoke to was very, very diverse. And the reasons why people entered sex work were very, very diverse. Um, and we spoke to Irish sex workers, to migrant sex workers, uh, um, a whole range of people with a whole range of different experiences and reasons for ending up in sex work or for entering sex work in the first instance. So we have to respect people's choices whilst at the same time make sure that we put in place uh, an approach mm. that allows people to manage those choices effectively. Well, so one of the, choice, of course, one of the of reasons course, is, course, is drug addiction, course, isn't people. it? I mean, uh, you know, if we, if we dealt with the drug problem in this country uh, differently, maybe we'd have fewer prostitutes. Um, I think it's absolutely the case that some people find themselves involved in sex work because of drug and addiction issues. And of course, we should be addressing those issues. But again, that's one element for some people who find themselves uh, entering sex work. Of course, we should provide all of the supports are necessary that allow, uh, allow people to, leave, to, leave, uh, to live lives of dignity, whether or not they're involved in sex work, whether or not they chose sex work as a way to, to manage their lives and provide for themselves and their families. So, of course, we need to do that. But we also need to remove the stigma uh, that's attached um, to sex work. I mean, stigma and discrimination are one of the primary reasons why sex workers do not feel able to come forward and report and speak about what's happening to them. But by the way, it's also very clearly the reason why they're not consulted. I mean, the simple fact is, in the introduction of these laws back in 2017, the Irish state and the Oireachtas did not engage appropriately or effectively with people actively engaged in sex work, and they're still not. They are not being listened to. Laws and policies are being designed and adopted and developed uh, and that govern and regulate the lives of people who are marginalised, who are at risk of violence, and they are not being listened to. So we're publishing this research today in an effort to try to ensure that the Irish government finally begins to listen to the experts of what's happening to sex workers, sex workers themselves. And right now, they're very, very clear that the legal and policy framework that's in place here in Ireland is putting them at greater risk of violence and abuse and exploitation, not less. Okay. They're also very, very clear that they do not trust the state. They do not trust on Garda Shirkana. They cannot and will not come forward whilst this policy and legal framework is in place and it needs to be urgently changed. Colm, thank you very much for joining us on the programme this morning. Colm O'Gorman is the Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's go back eight years in time uh, to 2014. Uh, the Times Online reporting that the High Court ruled in 2014 that district courts 
enjoy no jurisdiction to impose an informal sanction such as accepting a donation to the per box as this would amount to an indirect circumvention of the law. In the same year, 2014, eight years ago, the Department of Justice published the general scheme of the Criminal Justice Bill which proposes to abolish the court per box and introduce a statutory reparation fund which would apply to minor offences. The final version of this legislation has still to be published apparently. As I say, that's uh, as uh, the Times Online is reporting it, but the Times Online is also reporting how the per box is being used in certain circumstances. Let's talk once again to Susan Gray, who's uh, the chairperson of the Park Road Safety Group. And Park has been trying to find out how often the per box is used in courts around uh, the country. And uh, it's not altogether clear at this stage, Susan, is it? Good morning, Michael. First of all, Michael, we've been campaigning now since 2013 to get the court per box abolished. We attended courts around the country. We've seen some judges were allowing speeding drivers or drivers holding caught holding a mobile phone while driving. We've seen judges allowing an uh, offender to give a donation to a court per box and he or she would strike out the conviction and the person wouldn't get the five penalty points it was due. Mm. We reported to Leo Varadkar at the time, he was Minister for Transport, Francis Fitzgerald, who was the Minister for Justice. And we were promised that they would start a plan to abolish the court per box totally. Right? Mm-hmm. It started off with Alan Shatter, um, gave a promise to well, Leo Varadkar wrote to Alan Shatter and what he's concerned about the use of the court per box. Alan Shatter started the, a new bill to abolish the court per box. Then it went on to um, Frances Fitzgerald and we met with her. Hmm. Then it went on to Charlie Flanagan. And every time a PQ was asked, Michael, from 2014, through either Tommy Broom, the former TD for us, or Catherine Murphy now, it's the same reply. You're still working on this bill to abolish... The court per box. Yeah. I, I remember the now, discussion um, over the years very well. I, actually, I thought uh, wrongly, obviously, that the per box had been abolished. We thought at this stage, we wrote to all the district court judges years ago, and we asked, we told them about what we were observing when we were attending courts, and uh, we asked that they stop using the court per box penalty point offences. Like, it's it's so upsetting for families, Michael, that have lost loved ones in crashes. Like, speed is a factor in most fatal crashes. We all know that. Mm. You know, and when you think about it, I wonder how many drivers who've been given the court per box instead of a, a conviction on penalty, penalty points, how many of them have a long record of buying their way out yeah. penalty point offences? And how many should be off a road spinner? Mm. And then he's gone on to cause death or serious injury. Like, the use of the court per box makes the rest of us, Michael, the rest of us road users, much more vulnerable. And it kind of trivialises what is very serious crimes. Yeah. And if you can buy your way out of it, uh, the law only applies uh, to those who can't buy their way out of it. Exactly. But the... The donation doesn't seem to be very much 
So um, who wouldn't want mm. to part with a few bob rather than have a conviction and five penalty points for speeding or five penalty points for holding a mobile phone while driving? Causing them two offences, you're almost off the road because another two penalty points and you lose your licence for six months. So, and it's not fair either for the, the people that are paying the fixed charge notices and accepting that. There's no fairness there. Mm. And, and, and putting their hands up and accepting it and these others are evading it so simply by just going to the courts and paying them to the court per box. You spoke to us recently, Susan. Either. You spoke to us recently about how difficult it was to get certain information. Uh, what do you know about how often the court box is, or the per box is used in the courts? There's over 80 district courts, uh, and I think uh, yeah. you've established that it's being used in 20 of them, but you're not sure about the other 60. Is that right? Uh, Minister for Justice gave information to Catherine Murphy covering 20 district courts that were allowing the court per box. That leaves over 60. Now, there's no record, say, in Donegal. We have seven district courts in Donegal. There's no record of the court per box being used there. Kerry, no record there. Limerick, no record there. So we've asked Catherine Murphy to get clarification from the Justice Minister that the other 60-plus district courts that the judges have categorically never given the court per box in lieu of a penalty point, in lieu of penalty points or a conviction from 2018 to 2020. That was the period we asked to be covered. Now, it's hard to believe it would be great, Michael, if over 60 courts have totally stopped using the court prayer box, mm. but we need it in writing. And we've asked Catherine Murphy to also raise a question on the use of the court per box for the offence of holding a mobile phone mm. while driving. Because we have 74 people that got off speeding by um, giving a donation to the court per box. We want to see what, the, what that figure's like for holding a mobile phone while driving. And we need to, we need to ask so many questions, Michael, to get to the the best and to get to the real, real truth of how bad this situation is, or is it improving in a lot of counties? We would love to come back on with you in the near future and praise the likes of Donegal, Leitra, Mayo, Monaghan, Sligo, Limerick, mm. Meath, Wicklow, Wexford, Kerry, Offaly, Kildare, Carlow, Cavan and Kilkenny, who appear not to have used the court per box. But in my last interview with you, I read out a piece, a reply from the Justice Minister that came from the court service when we had asked how many were not convicted, say, for speeding or holding a mobile phone because the summons wasn't served. It was struck out because the summons wasn't served by the Gardaí. The court service wouldn't give that information. They said they don't record it. Mm. Right, unless the judge um, puts it in his order and then it's given it to the court service to record. So strange that that sort of information we couldn't get, and yet we can get some information on how many 
were struck out or dismissed because the court prayer box was used. So it's left so, you with questions trying to join up dots and you're hoping that uh, the authorities yes. will do that and give all of the information in a, a transparent way. And so this is the sort of research we would like. Mm-hmm. We would call on the Road Safety Authority to be doing. Okay, Susan, I have to leave it there. Thanks a million, Mike. Thank you very much indeed, as always, for joining us. Uh, Susan Gray is uh, the chairperson of the Park Road Safety Group. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, despite the restrictions uh, being lifted and uh, the advice uh, from government that you no longer need to keep uh, two metres distance uh, from people. The charity alone is asking everybody to respect other people's boundaries, in particular older and vulnerable people uh, who may be a bit cautious. Let's uh, talk to Sean Moynihan, who's uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Alone. Good morning to Sean. Thanks uh, for joining us as always on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I think uh, the rate the pace at how quickly the restrictions were lifted came as a big surprise to a lot of people. A lot of people absolutely delighted about it. Some people feeling that it's moving a bit too quickly. I think, yeah. Look, I think we're all delighted. It's brilliant news, you know. It's great to see people trying to get things back to normal. But I think for us, um, what we're, feedback we're getting from older people is, is, is all that positivity. But on the sphere side... Older people, like everybody else, has to navigate all the twists and turns here. And some of them, and especially over 75s, with the health outcomes and unfortunately high levels of bereavement of half and around COVID, there are still people who have to take it cautiously, who still need to make manage their own risks and make decisions for themselves. Mm. So we've sort of two things going on. One, where we want older people back in the community, back volunteering, back participating as they feel to do so and want to do so and then we've other people who maybe want to move slowly more slowly and have a backlog of health issues or some frailty issues or anxiety issues that some have been exacerbated by COVID Mm. so we need people to listen and include older people Well uh, it's perfectly understandable isn't it Uh, I mean we've been conditioned to to a large degree over the last couple of years uh, and you're talking to people all of the time uh, who have left their home over the last couple of years and as a result I'm sure they've lost a, a lot of their confidence Absolutely. And, you know, what, what happens is that loss of confidence. But we all know, you know, in, 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 in exercise terms, it's use it or lose it. But for older people, if they haven't been getting exercise, if they haven't been do, doing physical activities, that can lead to frailty, huge frailty issues. And that leads on to very poor health and outcomes for people. And obviously, there's been huge mental health and anxiety issues. So a lot of people have to rebuild. For some people, that's a long journey. And for some people, it may not even be possible. So ultimately, is, is what we need to do is help older people to re-emerge. And for those older people who are always active and running businesses and volunteering and all those great things older people do in our community, we need to create the access points and the encouragement to get people back into those places. And we need the services and also the social activities mm. restarting again. Mm. Uh, encouragement uh, but uh, maybe a little bit more than that uh, maybe reassurance that this is for real I, I think a, a lot of us are still pinching ourselves and wondering uh, can it be true I think so I think when something comes very quickly like this it takes a little while to digest and people you know the great thing is most people know their own mind themselves and will set the pace for themselves and I think that's really really important because I think after this moving so quickly, it takes a couple of days to digest, then it takes another couple of days for people to reflect on the situations they're in. 
and then to set some priorities and goals for themselves. So mm. we're here to support people to do that and we'd like the public to be supportive of all the people and respectful of all the people that are in their families or their communities. Mm. I think a lot of us have been guided over the last couple of years, Sean, by Dr Mike Ryan, uh, the Irish-born Executive Director of uh, the World Health Organisation. Mm. Uh, and uh, he, he's been uh, talking uh, to the Irish Times. Uh, I'm not sure if you read his comments uh, this morning, uh, but a lot of people are concerned about the emergence of a, a new variant. And he says, even if there is a new variant, we should be all right. And he also said, we need to be really kind to each other in the next few weeks and recognise that not everyone in Ireland will be whooping with joy at the lifting of uh, the restrictions. For some people, re-engaging will be a really hard process. There, there are the wounds of COVID, but there are also the wounds of isolation, anxiety and mental health difficulties. And we need to look out for people in general and particularly for people who are struggling. I think to a large degree, that sums up uh, what you're saying in alone, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, he, he's, put it, he's put it brilliantly, but that's what we're getting from older people. That's what we're seeing on the, on the ground from people is that, you know, there, there is a residue of the impact of COVID, um, you know, both on people's physical and mental health. And those things need to be addressed. And it's not all easy and it's not all simple for some people. And we need to just be cognizant of that, respectful, supportive. And as I said, we need or we want or we hope that, you know, the great thing about the pandemic is so many people reshape services, readapted to get things to going. But that also meant some compromises. Mm. So really, we want to see the services back in, in place in the community. And as much of that, when it is safe to do so, one-to-one, and maybe the backlog of housing issues, health issues, and other social issues or medical issues being addressed so people can get the care and attention that maybe has been deferred for for risk reasons and understandable risk mm. reasons, but ultimately it still needs to be done now. And it's the importance of being together, uh, that we come together and that we interact with each other. I think uh, for some of us, it was easier to lock down psychologically than it is to come out of that lockdown. Yeah, I, I think it is. I suppose it, I, I think he's put it, Mike Ryan, Dr. Mike Ryan has always put it really well there in the way he read it out. And I think the, 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 I think the way you read it was there's been wounds of the isolation and, you know, you know, huge our phone lines, our services, huge reports of anxiety, isolation and difficulty. And unfortunately, once that happens to you, mm. it's not something like a light switch. You can just switch and mm. then, OK, now that's stopped, it's grand and better tomorrow. So will people come out? Uh, I mean, if uh, the services are, are restored uh, and so on, or does more than that need to be done to encourage people to come out and avail of those services? I, I think I think we're going to need a bit more. I think we're going to need some type of an emer- emerging, emerging, not emer- emerging program or some type of program to encouragement, whether that's leadership from government, local authorities, from big service providers, basically just encouraging or sponsoring initiatives that reaches into people. That And that could even start with every local club where all the people have stepped back, you know, where they were involved, reaching out to their members and ringing and saying, Mary John, are you coming back now? What are you mm. feeling about this now? Mm. You know, we'll be here when you're ready. Mm. You know? Well, I know, so I know there's people listening. national listen- level to local level, we can do things about these. Yeah, well, I, I, I know there's, well, I'd be surprised if I'm wrong, Sean, but I, I think there's the people listening to us this morning saying, yeah, well, I'm not quite ready yet, maybe in a couple of weeks 
or maybe in a, a month or so when I see all of the figures coming down and uh, it, it, there's evidence that I, I can see because I've been looking at these figures every day and it's been frightening. I, I want to see the figures in the opposite direction. Yeah, and I think once people know then that the door is open, as, you, as I said, pe- people are respectful that uh, older people are their own best resource and they'll navigate mm. this. But even that phone call, maybe to say, you know, we're here when you're ready. You know, that's the encouragement. That's the open door policy we have. Or you can re-engage on your own terms. It's like sometimes if somebody was out from sick from work for a few months, they might come back a day or two a week rather mm-hmm. than come back full time. And then over time, they build up the capacity and the confidence again. Okay. So I think okay. local services and national services all need to be thinking and looking at things in these ways through okay. these lenses. Uh, and a message for all of us uh, to take into account uh, that some people will be hesitant and they will uh, appreciate it uh, if you keep your boundary uh, and uh, keep that two metres uh, distance uh, despite uh, what you think otherwise or how you act otherwise. Sean, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed. Uh, people can ring you on 08 18 uh, that's uh, the National Support and Referral Line 0818 and thank you as I say Sean Moynihan Chief Executive Officer of the charity alone let me bring you some of uh, the comments uh, that have uh, been coming to us uh, this morning uh, we'd Pat in touch with us uh, following our conversation with uh, Jed Nash Labour Party TD he said that it was great listening to Jed Nash tell us how he and the Labour Party would support all of those who are less well off pity he and they didn't do that when they were in government shameful then shameful now people will never forget or forgive their political betrayal says Pat never says Pat Uh, another Pat or Paddy Paddy Duffy uh, certainly falls into that category Uh, Pat it would seem because Paddy Duffy says I still haven't forgotten the Labour Party the Tesco ad and every little hurts and also Pat Rabbit speaking uh, about promises that you make at election time for the sake of getting elected. The Labour Party is wishing all of us to have amnesia, no credibility, says Paddy Duffy in his message. Just a a couple of uh, the text messages coming to us this morning and thanks if you have been in touch, if you haven't been in touch. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the country's top civil servant is paid a lot of money. How much is not really known at uh, this stage? Uh, Let's talk uh, about what Robert Watt earns and uh, what uh, he could be earning uh, with Matt Carthy, who's Sinn Féin TD for Cavan and Monaghan, uh, because you'd like to know uh, what Mr Watt is earning. Uh, This is the Secretary-General of uh, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform. He was appointed to that role on a salary of 292000 but he said he would waive 81000 of the salary because that would have been more than he had been previously paid. Uh, We don't know if that actually happened, uh, but we do know that he was also entitled to another pay increase of 2000 920 euro almost another 3000 euro yes and just a warning to your listeners michael workers and families who have been overstretched for the past couple of years have seen their income in real terms dwindle as a result of rising costs across insurance um, rents mortgages groceries petrol and diesel home electricity um, and the government's response is to provide them with 100 euro and that stands in stark contrast with the actions of government in relation to this role from the very start <coughs> so well, I, I, take, I take it Robert Watt will get the 100 euro apart from anything else well <laughs> um, that as it may be 
So this was a decision that was made by government when they asked Robert Watt, who was then the Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, that's the department that is charged with protecting taxpayers' money, to move across on a temporary basis to the Department of Health. At the same time, the government made a decision without, and this is according mm. to our Eroctus report that was published by both the, Depart- um, the Committee on Finance and Public Accounts, without any rationale, without any process in place as to why that salary increase of 81000 would be justified. That's the increase that they put in. They then advertised the position in order to search the globe in order for the best and brightest in the world to um, apply for this job so that they could be appointed at this hugely um, 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 increased salary. And lo and behold, the person who was found to be most qualified was the aforementioned previous Secretary General of the Department of Public Expenditure. And in the course of that appointment, there was quite a bit of controversy as to the basis and rationale for increasing. Now, recall that the increase was 81,000 euro, up to 292,000 euro. Um, And um, as a result of that controversy, when he was appointed, Mr. Watt um, indicated that he would be waiving that portion of his salary until such time as the economy improves or words to that Mm. effect. He was before the Public Accounts Committee in his capacity as the new Secretary General for the Department of Health in December and I asked him what I thought was a very simple question as to whether or not he continued to waive that salary and he refused to answer that question. So I subsequently um, um, submitted parliamentary questions to both the Department of Health and the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform and they refused to answer that question saying it was essentially his personal business as to whether or not he was drawing down 80,000 plus of taxpayers' money. But in the course of those responses, it actually emerged that as well as refusing to answer that question, it now appears that his his salary to which he is entitled has actually increased by a further um, 2,920, essentially 3,000 euro of an increase. So the salary now stands at 294,920. There are very few civil servants in the world mm. that are drawing down salaries of that level. But you, we, we don't know if Mr. Watt is drawing down that uh, amount or, or not, which well, is well, odd two, in itself. Two things on that, um, yeah. Michael. So the first, is, the first is the fact that that if that salary was set in the first place <clears throat> is, to my mind, an absolute scandal. And as I say, it stands in stark contrast with uh, decisions by government when it comes to family carers who have got no support during the pandemic, when it comes to student nurses who have got no support during the pandemic, when it comes to those ordinary workers and families who have been crippled with rising costs and have got virtually no support. As I say, Mm. Cabinet are bringing today, we're told, the proposal to give people €100 off their electricity bills. It doesn't even come close to matching the increase in electricity costs, Mm. never mind gas prices, um, insurance costs, all the other costs that families and workers have been faced with and the government have been very slow to do anything in that regard. In fact, Sinn Féin had to drag them kicking and screaming to even the point where they're introducing this €100 charge. Okay, well, it'll be for everybody. It'll be for the TDs, the hospital consultants, the judges, uh, the secretary generals of government departments, including Robert Watt. Uh, But civil service pay is a matter of public record, is it not? So what we know is the salary. Yeah. What we don't know is if 
people are waiving that salary. So is, it possible, is, I, is it possible to waive your salary? I thought we had something about this before and it was not possible to waive a uh, civil service salary that uh, you would have to gift it back after receiving what you were entitled to. No, you can gift it in advance. So I, as a Sinn Féin TD, alongside all Sinn Féin TDs, gift back on an annual basis the increments that have been put in, have been delivered by government since I think the, the last four or five years. So it amounted to some 10,000 euro last year. And it's a simple form that the Houses of the Oireachtas, as my employer, provide me that I can simply sign in order to waive that salary. So the same process is in place for any civil service, if, if they so wish. Now, of course, most civil servants um, aren't on anywhere close to the wages that we're talking about in this regard. And according to the Department of um, health, there is only one person who has indicated that they were waiving a salary and of course that is, we know, the Secretary General. What we don't know is how long they waived the salary, how much mm. of that salary they, they waived and whether they continued to waive that salary and as I say this amounts to over €80,000 if that money isn't going to the Secretary General as par- part of their salary package, that's money that can be spent um, in somewhere else and as I say this isn't about the personalities involved. This is about the principle involved in terms of how government make decisions and who they make the decisions on behalf of and whose interests they act on when they're making those decisions. And you know, I can point to a whole myriad of um, sections within the workforce, the different families who have been crying out for some support and whose um, calls and cries have fallen on deaf ears in terms of government. Yet it always appears that when the small golden circle make these cases that their uh, that their demands are adhered to and uh, you know i've mentioned this mm. week as well in terms of the public accounts committee and um, the department of agriculture and the department of public expenditure and reform approved only in recent weeks mm. a salary package for the new ceo of horse racing ireland that's worked over 52000 euro above the agreed rate the set rate that was set in place by government and when we asked them on what basis they agreed to that salary package, they did so on a business case that was supplied to them by Horse Racing Ireland. Now, that um, body is also in receipt of millions of Mm. euro of taxpayers' money. That's because of the success of the um, sector and the importance to the rural economy. But again, when taxpayers' money is involved, there should be absolute transparency and full accountability for how that money is spent. And in too many cases... There isn't. And we find huge wastages of money. We find in a small number of instances individuals who are on massive salaries. It's the value you place on. It's the value you place on people and their expertise, uh, I take it. And it's great money if you can get it. If you can get it, there'll always be those who can't get it who begrudge you. Is this a case of begrudgery? No, absolutely not. I want to see um, high-level civil servants and public services servants to be well paid, which they are. The, department, the Secretary General in the Department of Taoiseach, who is actually the, um, the leading civil servant in the country. I know people have described um, the Secretary General of the Department of Health, but the, his boss is on a salary that is 80,000 less than he is. Now, of course, what's going to happen in this instance, uh, Michael, when the next Secretary General for the Department of Taoiseach is being employed? they're going to argue that we can't possibly be getting a salary package that's €80,000 less than somebody who's our subordinate. And so this is going to have a knock-on impact in terms of public money. And again, what we want above all else, because if it's a case... Mm. 
that a certain salary package is required in order to attract the best and the brightest or whatever the case may be, well then let us know what the rationale. The public well, what about, and what, the Committee on Finance... What about a global went, pandemic? Uh, I mean, that has to be taken into account because this uh, undoubtedly was one of uh, the most important, if not the most important roles in the civil service at a, a time of national emergency when we were trying to deal with... COVID-19 and all that came with that, uh, surely we wanted uh, the best and the brightest. Well, as I say, this, is, uh, this was an internal transfer within the public service in terms of the appointment that was made. But if there is a rationale, if the COVID emergency actually resulted or warranted in an additional pay package of €80,000, now remember that pay package, that increase of 80000 plus is actually more than what most of our frontline workers on the, um, on their, in our health services were receiving in totality during the pandemic itself. But if that was the rationale and if there was a basis for it, then the government had ample opportunity to supply that because, as I say, two Oireachtas committees, the Committee on Finance and the Committee on Public Accounts, in a unique arrangement, came together in order to analyse this and to seek answers as to the rationale and basis And at the end of the day, they came to the finding that there was none. There was no um, clear justification for this salary scale. And I think that's what people will be particularly um, angry about, because, as I say, Hmm. many of the people who will be listening to your show this morning, whether they're in their cars or in their work or in their homes, are in many instances trying to figure out how they will meet the bills next month. And the relaxation of the restrictions has meant additional costs are now coming down the lines. And they but you wouldn't for nothing else other than a break from government, and it hasn't been mm. provided. You, you there wouldn't... are some, a small golden circle in Irish society, who still manage to cream off the top every single time. You wouldn't see any merit, though, uh, because of uh, the level of responsibility uh, and the pressure that somebody would be under as uh, the top civil servant in health rather than in public expenditure, where you'd be making considered decisions about what to spend and on what and when uh, in comparison to this emergency situation that we live through uh, and having to make life and death decisions uh, 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 and uh, very little time to consider any of it. Well, the pandemic will be over um, at some point, but the salary scale will remain in place. And absolutely, as I say, I want our civil servants, particularly those with responsibility, to be well paid. But that pay has to be based on a rationale and a process that justifies that pay. And that wasn't there in this instance. And you know, and if any of your listeners are engaged in workplace relations issues, making pay claims, they have to detail in very specific ways why they're entitled to a salary increase that sometimes might work out at five or ten euro a week. Here we have a situation where um, government at the highest level, and remember this was signed off on by the three party leaders in in the coalition. This wasn't um, decided by an independent arbitrary body. It wasn't decided by any panel of experts. This was a political decision that says we're going to appoint somebody um, with this um, salary now amounting to almost €300,000, while we have within the same health service student workers who at that time were entitled to precisely zero for the work that they were doing on our front line, including in some instances putting their own health and safety at risk.
Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin TD for Cavan and Monaghan, a member of uh, the Public Accounts Committee. Thanks to Pat Imbalbriggan, who's texting us about this. He says, look, there's nothing new about ministers or advisors or others in high places in this country getting lots of money. It's nothing short of greed, which is a pandemic in this country. And what about all of the CEOs of everything from government jobs to all of the charities. Some are getting €120,000 a year. Money that has to be raised from ordinary workers through donations. Greed, greed, greed. Great little country, says Pat in Balbriggan. Thanks for your text as always, Pat. Michael Reed on LMFM. Diesel laundering continues uh, to be a problem and a costly one at uh, that. Uh, the journal.ie reporting yesterday that uh, the Department of the Environment showed the cleanup cost of diesel laundering in counties Louth and Monaghan to run to €1,127,726 over a four-year period. Uh, most of that was in County Louth, where the clean-up cost was €837,919. In fact, uh, nearly a quarter of a million was spent uh, on uh, this uh, type of work in the course of last year. Let's uh, talk to local Sinn Féin TD, Rory Murakou, who's on the line. Good morning to you and thanks indeed for joining us. I, I thought that uh, this was said uh, to come to a- an end in 2015, as uh, the article in the journal.ie points out a colourless marker was added. Yeah, look, we had a conversation, well, we've had a number of conversations over the years in, in relation to this. First of all, I just add my voice to what Anton Waters had also said, an absolute blight. And I, I think the example he used where was uh, one of these places where some of these IPCs were dumped with the, the waste sludge was right beside a blue flag beach. So that just tells you how bad this could be. And look, mm. we've all heard of situations where sometimes um, as bad as this is and the huge cost that this is and the huge environmental impact it is that we have seen cases over the years of people doing absolutely desperate things of trying to hide this in all sorts of really environmentally unfriendly ways, you know. But they've um, obviously found a, a way around this uh, colourless marker, have they? I, I will, I'm going to be following up this not only with Loud County Council, but also with um, with, the, with the Gardaí, who I'd obviously have regular contact with due to, you know, the many issues that cross the TD's desk. Um, but my understanding was that, yes, that it was an, on some level near impossible using whatever the previous methods were for uh, diesel laundering or washing the dye out mm. and yeah that revenue had found a solution to this uh, and that I believe that the only way of dealing with this and we spoke about this previously what was an element of boiling it which was incredibly dangerous and um, that here and I worked on the basis that there was a lot less people at it but this is still a significant uh, you know amount of criminality which there's absolutely no call for but at a huge cost um from governmental and state point of view and also just the the, the possible uh as i say negative outworkings mm. of the process uh, or the environmental waste is huge and also here every regular joe you know what i mean that may um end up with this stuff in their uh, fuel tank 
could end up with a huge cost in relation to their cars. Now, we obviously yeah. have the wider issue of, like, you know, we, we, we obviously want to move to a different place as regards, you know, the type of fuels we're all dealing with and all the rest of it. I suppose we also have to throw out um, just the, the cost of fuel here at the minute. We have a huge energy crisis that, mm. like, adds to the cost well, it's of It's going to get more crisis. expensive as well, of course. Yeah, well, Which, well, that's it. And sometimes mm. that creates a greater level of differential. And there are, unfortunately, those people who will try and uh, make a profit on the basis of that. But well, at the, the moment, the difference is 40 cents a, a litre of fuel, apparently. And Louth County Council had to deal with 181 of these IBCs last year, these bulk containers, uh, which uh, seems... Uh, to be an increase uh, or would look as though it's probably an increase uh, in terms of uh, the last four years because you're talking about a quarter of a a million out of uh, just over 800,000 euro on uh, the cost of cleaning up these things so that would seem to indicate that it's becoming more regular yeah that that's my fear and and that's why following uh, seeing this story I, I have no i obviously have to follow up in relation to it to see what exactly is is happening here now now the obvious thing is nobody should be at that we call on people to absolutely desist uh, we also need to look at the point of um and again this is twofold i, I suppose do we have a number of places that there are dump sites that are easily accessible so people think they can dump this stuff and, and get away safely and all the rest of it. Now, the danger of that not happening um, is, I, I suppose, that some of the uh, really dangerous dumping and whatever would occur, which obviously is is a, a step up that is even worse than, than than what's happening here. But but we need we need to, uh, I need to talk to revenue. I, we need to talk to Loud County Council, and and we need to have a full conversation in relation to what what can be done. And um, because look, this you can just imagine what a worst case scenario would be in relation to this absolute sludge and and, and that's even without talking about the impact it could be having on all our cars now i'd like to think Mm. that uh, they have cut off an awful lot of what may have been previous um outlets you know and that it's probably you know, re- revenue rules changed and all the rest of it. Uh, and, you know, that the supply chain uh, problem that would have existed where people could have possibly got, you know, illegal fuel into, you know, regular outlets, yeah. that, that, that that isn't just as easy to do. Well, so that was the thing. I mean, up to 2015, it, it was very commonplace and uh, people were going up to their local garage uh, and not realising it, uh, but there were buying laundered diesel uh, and uh, ended up with problems with engine C's on occasion uh, and all sorts of things. Uh, but this was to be the solution and it seemed to go off uh, the agenda for some time. Hey, 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 exactly. We all believed as much as some of it was going on that the numbers were seriously reduced and, and like an awful lot of issues, it would peter out. But um, the story that you've highlighted today just shows that, no, we're in a bad enough situation. So I will be doing those follow up conversations. Mm. This isn't good enough. Now, I did say there is the wider issue of the price that people have to pay at this point in time. And we also have the wider uh, cost of living issue, particularly as regards uh, heating costs and everything. And you spoke about that earlier that that's something Sinn Féin and others have you know and again this week it's an issue that we'll all be debating just we, we, we need a solution in the short term while there are wider issues that that obviously need to be dealt with probably more likely even at a European Commission level you know n- never mind even at a state level but uh, uh, we, we need a number of solutions to that because people are under serious serious pressure at this point in time to the cost of energy generally uh, but when it comes to laundering, what was that you were saying about boiling um, the diesel, was it? 
Yeah, well, look here, I'm not entirely yeah. sure in relation to the, you know, what, what the process is, but the, it was, um, and again, I think this is in the public domain, um, that there's a, there there may be, there was a means of getting around this, but it, it was a very, very dangerous process, you know, and... Uh, you'd, now, run the, I imagine, you'd, you'd run the risk of an explosion by the sounds of yeah, it. Yeah, look, I hear, I'm no chemist, but yeah. I imagine, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about... Um, very dangerous points would uh, during this process would, would be occur you know would occur and that you would need to make sure that wh- whoever was doing this you would just pray and hope that they had you know top of the range health and safety and you know what i mean uh, quality checking but i wouldn't like to bet on it so look that's the other thing i would say to anyone who would even think or consider this that just a danger to themselves and others is huge and that's before you even talk about the environmental uh, issues that are you know here Mm. huge Mm. you know absolutely um have you any knowledge of anybody uh, laundering uh, in the last few years uh, because i think there was always talk uh, about different people linked uh, to paramilitaries uh, linked to the republican movement uh, in the past uh, who would have been involved in laundering well first of all i was going to say with the conversation we had earlier in relation to the fact that um people were getting this in garages i would have said these garages anecdotally you were hearing this was happening all across the island you know what i mean so here there was a huge amount of people who were looking at a means of uh, making money on the black market um like we've always said right there was always an element where people uh, smuggled on the border because of differential you know differential pricing and such it's like any other border in 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 the world and um, look there's an awful lot of conversation an awful lot of conversation in the media and independent newspapers over the years in relation to who was involved i i i suppose it always has to come down to you can only work on the basis of those that are prosecuted and all the rest of it and i would say that anyone that's involved in this sort of activity this is not republican activity you know while, while accepting here years ago people may have had a view in relation to the law and everything but this is this is having a serious serious societal impact you know this is impacting on the community so like once again i'd reiterate this this is in in no way republican so anyone who is involved in this uh, it it certainly isn't involved in 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 anything republican but again Mm -hmm. this is just abject criminality and it just needs to be dealt with but when you know what i mean i would say to anybody that's listening uh, if you're involved in something that's an incredibly dangerous process, you should definitely desist. And the impact, even if everything goes well and and somebody happens from their point of view, make some money, that, that the cost to the state, the mm. cost to the regular Joe, um, and the cost to the environment is too big. Who is footing the bill? Uh, because uh, I was confused reading this article in the journal.ie. They spoke uh, to the Director of Operations with Loud County Council, Catherine Duff, uh, who was talking about this cost of €247,450 to clean up from diesel laundering just last year and just in County Louth. Uh, And um, there's a very clear impression from the article uh, that that's a a bill that's been footed by Louth County Council. That wasn't always the case. It it used to come uh, from Exchequer funding uh, and then channeled through the County Councils. What's your understanding of that? 
Yeah, no, no. My understanding is the same. That yeah, like that. Obviously, they deal with it. They they, they facilitate uh, at a county council level, but that the payment would have come from um, from uh, from governmental level, from central uh, government level. That's still my understanding. But again, mm. it's you know that may be the actual first question I, I ask in relation to this, and and I have no difficulty coming back to yourselves uh, in relation to that, just to ensure there's absolute clarity. Mm. Um, but, it, but, but it, it, either it which way, yeah, it doesn't make much difference, does it? Uh, I mean, it may uh, hinder the ability of the local authority to provide local services if Louth County Council has to pay it. But when we get to the end of the working week and we look at our uh, pay slip uh, and we see all of the money that's gone out of it intact, some of it is going to pay for that quarter of a million euro that it costs to clean up uh, the sludge from the diesel laundry. Yeah, I think it's fair to say this is not a cost-free uh, mm. crime, and the fact is that me, you, and every uh, an awful lot of uh, the listeners are the people who who end up paying for it. But I'd also state. Uh, I'd like to think this wasn't being paid by Loud County Council because, look, see the conversations I'm having with Loud County Council and that I'm also having um, with the Department of Housing in relation to the fact that we have an insufficient maintenance uh, budget to do the business that we need to do. And, and I think you had Kevin Meenan on previously in relation to, uh, if we're talking about across this town, because I know there's issues also in some of the older housing estates like Merhavnamore and, and Coxes, where, um, and particularly Merhavnamore, where there was to be a regeneration scheme that didn't occur um, and we, we need a number of things to happen we need uh, I suppose some of those in bills that are happening to happen we also need um, maintenance to be done and whether that's retrofitting scheme to be upgraded and to be escalated um, or, or whether in, in certain instances there will be need for, for rebuilds but but again the assessment needs to happen uh, Loud County Council needs to put this and this is what I'm looking for at the minute at the door of government and then government need to step up up to the mark because it's it's just another part of what's not working at a localised level in, in relation to housing. Alright, uh, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you as always for joining us uh, this morning. Rory O'Muraku, Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Time now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. Garda Fiona Kerr joins us for the report this week from Navan Garda Station. And thank you for doing that. We're going to begin in Laytown, uh, where a number of cars have been broken into. Good morning, Michael. That's right. A number of thefts from cars have been reported recently around the beach areas near Gorman Sand train station and the Delvin Bridge areas of Laytown. So if you're parking up and going for a walk in the beach, please do park smart and never leave property on view in your vehicle, like handbags, cash, electronics and tools, as they are the items that are most often taken. So when parking your car, uh, try to park in a busy, well-lit, secure area. Secure all the doors and close windows and set your car alarm and double-check that the the car doors are locked and take valuable property with you. Do not leave property inside your vehicle. Okay, good advice. Uh, we go to Navin next, uh, where Gardaí are investigating a burglary. That's right. Navin Gardaí are investigating a burglary which occurred in Dean Cogan Place in Navin, where cash and jewellery were taken from the house. And this burglary was believed to have occurred between the 18th of the 1st at 12 noon and the 19th of the 1st at 10 a.m. So if anyone can help in any way, please contact Nav and Gardy who are investigating this. Next to Dundalk, uh, and you're hoping that uh, somebody might be able to give some information about an assault that occurred in the town. That's right. On December 19th, uh, December last, 
um, on at approximately 1.30am at Park Street in Dundalk. Uh, the injured party in this case was getting food in a takeaway after socialising in Dundalk with a friend and he was approached by a male who tried to push past him and an altercation broke out. Uh, the injured party was then pulled outside and assaulted by the suspect and a number of his friends. And he was struck in the face a number of times and hospitalised as a result. So we were asking listeners this morning to try and remember back to December 19th and if they were on Park Street in Dundalk at approximately 1.30am, did they witness this incident or do they have any information regarding this incident? And if so, to please contact Dundalk Guard Station. Okay. Uh, we're back uh, to Navin for a burglary uh, that took place, uh, this was uh, just under a week ago. That's right. So Navin Guard are investigating the theft of a number of kegs of beer from Chakna Taranak on the Trim Road in Navin on the evening of Wednesday, January 19th. A silver-coloured Ford Transit with an unknown uh, registration was spotted acting suspiciously around the premises during the night. So if anyone can help in any way to identify the van or the suspects, please give the Gardaí and Navin a call. And to Trim, where Gardaí are investigating a burglary. That's right. Trim Gardaí are investigating a burglary that took place in Moynalvi Manor, in Moynalvi, on the 20th of January. It occurred between 12.45 and 3pm. A suspect car was spotted entering a housing estate and passed Moynalvi National School a number of times, while three suspects entered the home and spent well over an hour in it. So if anyone was in the area and saw anything unusual, please contact the Guardian Trim. Uh, word of warning next, indeed, an appeal for information, I gather, about some bogus tradesmen who have been reported in the Laytown area. That's right. Laytown Guardian are investigating an incident that occurred on Mill Road in Stamullen, uh, reported on the 22nd of January, where two bogus tradesmen carried out work in the estate. So it's believed that they were in the area after 1pm, and the only details are that a white estate-type car with ladders on the roof was used. So no registration details or make or model are available. So both men were in their 30s. Guardi are appealing for information from residents who may have seen the two men or the car to contact them in Leighton. Okay, and uh, word of warning uh, on the same note for that matter for anybody else. Uh, to Summerhill and two burglaries to report on next. Yeah, Trim Guardian are investigating two burglaries which occurred in the Dangan and Clarkstown areas of Summerhill on Friday last, that's January the 21st, between 4.30 and 5.30pm. So anyone who may have been in the area at that time and noticed anything acti- anyone acting suspiciously or a suspicious vehicle are asked to contact Trim Guard Station or the Guard Confidential Line, as always, is available on 1-800-666-1. OK, we're going to conclude uh, with some advice about our air codes. What's an air code? Yeah, so we're asking people, do they know their air code? So if you don't, to please familiarise yourself with this. It's a unique number uh, to your own property. Um, to please keep a copy of your air code written near your home phone and advise elderly and vulnerable neighbours and friends to do likewise. So should you need to contact the Guardi or any of the emergency services, then having your air code to hand will enable us to reach you much faster. And also, if you have a monitored home alarm system, to please ensure that you've provided the alarm company with your air code. Okay, because uh, they were somewhat controversial when they were first introduced, but uh, when you actually use them, they can be very, very useful and they can be very, very helpful, as you say, to frontline uh, emergency services. uh, And uh, it's very easy to uh, Google for your air code. Maybe you do that uh, for people who don't have the internet, uh, as you say, so that they can have it beside them, written down beside their phone, as the case may be. Uh, Thank you indeed, uh, Garda Fiona Kerr of Navangarda Station. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on 
on next Tuesday's programme. Uh, before we leave you today, some of uh, the comments coming to us. Uh, a text uh, from somebody who was asking about uh, the elderly uh, during uh, the pandemic and what was done for them. Uh, it was kind of a rhetorical question, I think, because our caller says nothing. Uh, somebody else uh, in touch with us saying that they're aware of diesel laundered. People will buy it when it is as cheap as it is uh, and uh, who could blame them? Well, I think there's probably good reason not to do it uh, given uh, the effect uh, that it will have and uh, the damage that it will do to your car and can leave you without an engine that the engine can seize up. But thank you indeed uh, for getting in touch. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.